So this class is going to be a little bit different uh, than previous, the previous class on, on Jewish history. And what, last time we talked about kind of more of a bigger picture of the Jewish people and more of a macro. Um, what does God want from us? How is he leading us? What's the direction? What are the trends? And what are the stories and the major themes and events that happened to the Jewish people from Abraham till the times of the destruction of the first temple? What we're going to try to do today is actually do from the second, from the, from the destruction of the first temple, the beginning of exile, because it's a time of major uh, upheaval and transition for the Jewish people, and primarily in one area, in one area more than any other area, and that is the area of Torah. The Jewish people have been forever linked with, with Torah, and you kind of could track Jewish history in a very similar course to the history of Torah. And we know, as I mentioned last time, that the history of the Jewish people is more about the individuals and the people and the great leaders than it is about the events. And the great leaders means the great Torah scholars. So in a sense, if we wanted to get really a picture of where the heart and soul of Jewish people are throughout history, we can look at the, the, the Torah transmission process and the major, major uh, turns that it takes from the time of the first temple being destroyed to the present time, and we get also the flavor of the Jewish people, um, what actually happened to them during those times. But more importantly, it teaches us also about what the Torah is and how did it develop, what are the uh, definitions of the various terms you'll hear. You hear a lot of terms about what Torah, about Mishnah, about all Torah, about Talmud, about Maimonides, Shulchan Aruch, all these things, where do they fit in, and how did it all develop. So that's what we're going to try to do today. Um... I think we might have mentioned this last time, the, the importance of accuracy in the transmission of the Torah it cannot be under, understated. We're, we're coming with a claim. The claim the Jewish people have forever uh, given to the world is that we have the will of God and it, in its most accurate form, and that's the way we live. The Jewish people have been a people of God because we are governed by the laws of God. The Torah. Now, the second there is any mistake, or any deviation, or any uh, or, or any perversion of the Torah, then kind of the Jewish people and what we stand for ceases as well. Yeah. So that begs the question of all these different branches of Judaism that reconstructive and whatever. Well, so so that's a very modern question. Okay. Your question is a very, very modern question because if I fast, if I if I rewind two hundred years, if it was now not twenty fourteen, rather eighteen fourteen, you would never ask the question. You know why? Because there weren't any. There weren't any. Now historically, the the movements that sprang up in the nineteenth uh, to twentieth century are not the only examples of schisms, fractures amongst the Jewish people. We've had famously in the times of the destruction of, of the Second Temple. Remember the name Sadducees, the Essenes, these groups. In the ninth century, the ninth or seventh century, we have the Karaites. So it's not it's not a new phenomenon where there's a group that says we want to have a different brand of Judaism. That's not a new thing. Uh, it's very rare, exceedingly rare. But it's also it's been different than let's say the Christians and the many 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 different splinter sects that uh, that are uh, under the same umbrella of Christianity uh, or uh, Islam. That Islam has really two different religions, and the Sunnis and the Shias, all the way from day one, uh, where it's vastly different, uh, vastly different, uh, and 
perpetuated so different religions. As opposed to uh, the Sadducees, while they may have made they may have made a major uh, upheaval amongst the Jewish people, but they're gone now, and the Karaites are almost gone now. There's a Karite temple, I think, one of them in L.A., but it's not. It's a non-factor, even though it was huge at its time. And you know what? The, the early reform is also gone. There's no such thing as early reform today. Um, so the reform movement, in a certain sense, is gone. Because I don't know why people always say to me, "Oh, you have so many different ways." And then I turn around and say, "You have so many different churches. What difference is?" Yeah, know, it's just to, to deflect no. the question. Uh, you no, know, it's it's it's, it's, me, it's even even if we take the Jewish people and look at them as three different religions, reformers, or Orthodox, or Reconstructionists, or humanitarian, or whatever whatever people like to brand their Judaism is. First of all, it's at its core, it's kind of we kind of agree on almost every matter. And second of all, like our basic texts, for example. The Torah, we have an accurate text of the Torah, no one disagrees, almost, there's almost no deviation, a document that's 3,300 years old, and there's no, almost no deviation, uh, there's no words that are different in my Torah, and, and, and anyone's Torah, as opposed to, let's say, the, uh, the, um, Catholic, uh, the, 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 you know, the uh, New Testament, so to speak, or the so Christian Bible, there's 2,000 variations, yeah. and there's right. gross mistakes, and just terrible, like terrible mistakes, and of course, uh, the, uh, the Quran is no different. No, the okay, Quran just has major, so, major gaps and major it places people in the wrong place, you know. So the difference of us would be like in prayer or how we, the different prayer books, because I've seen it's different ver- it's, it's very minor. But you're saying Torah. It's, ve- it, it's very minor and it's a passing phase. It's a passing phase. And if, you know... The, the differences that would exist in the various Jewish, Jewish communities today are much more narrow than they were 100 years ago. In 100 years, uh, 100 years ago, like, no one would dare walk into a reform shul with a kippah, with a yarmulke. No one. They, they would, they would, that, was like, that was like literally the worst thing you could possibly do. Uh, but that's not true anymore. And there's been a readoption of Torah in the reform right. world and a readoption of Israel. You know, but, uh, Israel was a, was, was a no-no up to 1937 where they adopted it. it yeah, so it's a, it, it, the, the difference is, while they may have been very big in the 19th century and early 20th century, kind of narrowed now. So, yes, there's still differences, and, but it's not quite as minor. So it's more, I think of it, I look at it more, if you look at the big picture, as a passing phase. And something that we've been through before, and uh, we weathered and we survived as a single individual intact nation. And we'll do that as well with this, uh, uh, in, you know, this current phase of different offshoots of... Uh, now, that being said, I think Reconstructionist is, is really a totally different religion. It's not even based on any any principles when and things like that. It, it's just yeah, it's just bizarre. nonsense. It's nonsense. That that that's nonsense. But uh, um, but you think of a reform conservative. It's the core principles of believing in God, believing in the Torah, and and, and believing in the narrative and, and and the responsibilities and what it means to be Jewish. Those themes is very little different. Uh, now, with regards to actual observance, obviously that's where you'll find a major difference. But uh, the uh, a, a different means. Yeah, and you found that forever, like you've, that, that's been ever present, where you have some Jews that believe one thing and behave a different way. That's very common. But uh, the ideology is the same. Even though the practice is different, it's still united in, in, in uh, philosophy and ideology. Okay, where were we? We lost track of where we were. Okay, so the importance, that's why the importance of the accurate transmission of the Torah cannot be understated, because the second we have a uh, a, a mistake or a, a deviation or or or, uh, 
some sort of hiccup in our transmission process than the entire vision of what the Jewish people are and what we stand for is derailed. Now, in ancient times, right, we don't have a book of laws, really. We have the written Torah, but we don't have, everything was orally transmitted. So that means that all you have, really, as a physical document is the Torah. And the Torah doesn't really tell you how to behave as a Jew. The Torah is more broad strokes. The Torah is an outline. The Torah is a framework for uh, what it means to be a Jew. But to actually live as a Jew, you can't do that. You don't know what Shabbos is if you read the Torah. It says don't do work. Well, what does that mean? What constitutes work? It doesn't tell you. It gives you a very broad picture of the overall, I guess it's a framework for the Torah uh, and what it actually means. But the Almighty chose to give it to us in uh, oral fashion. So when the Jewish people were at Mount Sinai, they were studying Torah the entire year that they were there. What were they studying? They weren't studying the written Torah. In fact, they didn't get the written Torah until 40 years later. So what were they studying? They were studying the oral Torah. What does that mean? The laws, the applications, and, and the, what, what it actually means. How does Jew live? You're Jewish now. Right? You're no longer just a tribe. You're a nation. A nation under God, obviously. Right? The Almighty took us out of Egypt, and he transferred this, this servitude and dedication that we had to Pharaoh, our master, to God. God's now the master, and now you have to act as a Jew. We encamp at Mount Sinai. We're there for a year. We learn what it means to be a Jew. We learn what it is to be a Jew. We begin practicing as Jews, and we begin teaching our children what it means to be a Jew. And from day one, there is already an entire uh, system in place to ensure that everything is transmitted 100% accurately. For example... We read a couple of weeks ago in the Torah about the Sanhedrin. It's a, it's a word that you'll hear a lot. Sanhedrin was, think of it as the Supreme Court of Jewish law. And their job was to be the voice of unified central authority for Jewish law and Jewish, and, and, and Jewish policy. And whenever there was a disagreement, whenever there was a, a problem, there was a, an argument, uh, one rabbi in, in the neighborhood said this, and one rabbi said that, they had a disagreement, their oral law wasn't so clear, they would march up to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had a 71 of the greatest Jewish scholars, plus an additional 69 scholars in waiting. Three this sets. is at Sinai. Well, this yeah. began even at Sinai. Yeah. Yes. Right, we'll get to when it ended. And they would mediate, and they would present the argument, and that was a flowing, fluid uh, transmission and uninterrupted for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years, there was a court comprised of the greatest and brightest of the Jewish scholars, where a, where, and it was never seized and never interrupted, and from there we got guidance, from there we got instruction, and from there we clarified any disagreements that, that may, may arise. Additionally, additionally, for the first, at eight, uh, 900 years after Sinai, the Jewish people were blessed by, by great sages that were also prophets. Prophet means that they're able to communicate with God. More precisely, God communicates with them. Now, we are, not, we, we are right now a non-profit organization, the Jewish people. We don't know what it means to be, to have a prophet. 
But back in the day, you had a, there was a prophet, and you would go to him and ask your question. You would say, hey, what do I do? Do I do this business deal or not? What field should I get into? Right? I lost my uh, iPod. Where is it? That, that, that was the kind of the way they lived. They lived in, in an atmosphere where, the, where God and his presence was everywhere. They were open miracles, and no one flinched in it, just like no one flinches when they see a helicopter flying in the sky. That's a miracle. How is it not falling down? We're so used to it, it's not a big deal anymore. Prophecy was everywhere, ever-present. Supreme knowledge of Torah was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. No one flinched at it. Now, I did, it, just think about it this way. Imagine if, 2,000 years ago, a helicopter flew over Rome. People would freak out. Just like they would freak out if, imagine today, a prophet walked in and knew what you were holding in your pocket. Right? And, and to tell you where you lost uh, jewelry, God forbid if you lost it, uh, is. You know? And Saul would go over, go, went over to Samuel and said, where's my donkey? Why? Because that's what normal people did. It's like doodle. It's doodle. For, do you want answers? You go to the prophet. And the prophets were also a very important stopgap, protective measure to ensure that the Torah was transmitted accurately. The prophet was there to help answer questions, and when there was a uh, when when they didn't know, they would be able to communicate with God. We have the books of Ezekiel, we have the books of Jeremiah, Isaiah. These are famous prophets that were in communication with God. To us, it's a foreign idea. It's bizarre. It's strange because we can't conceptualize such such spiritual greatness. But this was commonplace then, and this was another method to ensure that no mistakes uh, were perpetuated. Additionally, there was something called the Urvatumim. The Urvatumim, in the first temple period, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had a breastplate on which there were 12 stones. And the 12 stones had the names of the 12 Shvatim. And when there was a question, sometimes the Jewish people would ask a question and they wouldn't know the answer. And they would go to the Kohen Gadol and would say, Tell us what the answer is. And the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol and the letters of the, of the 12 tribes would illuminate the answer. This was common. Right? This would, and that's why we have absolutely no record of any disagreement, of any misunderstanding, of any, of any inaccuracy in transmission of the Torah for the first 900 years. Because we had A, prophecy, B, we had the Urvatumim in the first temple, C, we had, and C, we had the Sanhedrin. When was, when was the Sanhedrin formed, Rabbi? Moses formed the Sanhedrin. Ah, okay, okay. Now let me ask you this. Who decided that these 71 plus 69? Moses appointed them. Moses appointed Moses. them. And, and uh, the Talmud describes what they, they actually had a... Uh, 69 apprentices, but these were like the next in the line, and they would find someone who was the greatest scholar that's not part of the group. And when someone would die of the Sanhedrin, they will, then the next one in line out of 69 right. would, 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 would go up, go, everyone move up a spot, they so write to speak. down uh, like a complaint. This is the complaint, this is how we figured well, it out. We the have a, that's a good, good point. They, we have, they, they, they wrote it down, it was never canonized. Now, the word canonized is a very important word. Because the fact that you and I write Torah, it doesn't make it holy. It's not sanctified. It's Torah. It's, it's a very holy thing. But it's not binding for the entire Jewish people. Right? Nothing binding about it. The Torah 
Right? Moses gave us the Torah. This is bind. This is canonized. This is the Torah. Right? There's no negotiation about it at all. And now, over the course of that 900 years that we're talking about, a lot of people wrote Torah. A lot of people wrote down, uh, organized uh, for themselves or for their community, uh, Torah ideas, oral Torah. They organized themselves, but it was never canonized until the Mishnah. Kind of like officiate. Yes, yes, and and there was and was finally stamped with with approval of the entire Jewish people, so to speak. And we see this many several times throughout Jewish history. And the Jewish history we're discussing now, the history of the Torah, there were several times, and that's what we're going to try to cover today, where there was a certain finality. There was a certain uh, organization of the pretty much representatives of the entire Jewish people, and they agreed that a change has to be made to the to the method, or else. The transmission process is in doubt. And they did something that was, from then on, binding to every subsequent generation. Now, at the destruction of the te- Second Temple, so we have in between the First and Second Temple, we have 70 years. Those are the years where the story of Purim, for example, happened. The famous names are Ezra, is a famous name that we know from that time. Uh, and they... Uh, that that period, right, the end of the first temple uh, period, is really the beginning of what we know as exile. It's the beginning of the diaspora. Right? The, before the destruction of the second temple, there was already, uh, we know the story of uh, 10,000 of the best and greatest and brightest leaders of the Jewish people were exiled to Babylon. And the Jewish people freaking out because there was no one left. All the scholars, all the talented people were all sent off to Babylon. And the Talmud tells us this was a blessing in disguise because the Almighty knew that there was going to be an exile. And the temples were destroyed and civilization in Jerusalem would, was going to come to an end. The Jewish people would all be taken to Babylon. Therefore, he made that it was done incrementally in stages, that the first group of people were the best and brightest. They were brought over to exile, to exile in Babylon and they established and developed a vibrant, flourishing Jewish society that when the rest, the masses of the Jewish people, were, came at the, uh, at the, uh, after the, uh, the, the destruction of the, t- of the temple into the full-fledged exile, they already came and it was already a dynamic Jewish community. The they had shuls and mikvahs and everything. How was that accomplished? What because, you, you know, you, that, that the scholars or those folks went first? Were first, yes. But, you know, I thought that it was all, you know, the Jews were all driven out at the same time from Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. Yes, well, well no. So there was, no. It, well, it was, it was first 10,000, but then it was the masses of the Jewish people, you know, hundreds of thousands. Okay. Uh, but this is already recorded in the Book of, in the book of Kings. People that first go, is yes. that before the destruction? Yes, so yes. I can't remember any, how many years before, 10 or 20 years before. Do. 10 or 20 years before. And the Talmud says that this is another example of God intervening in Jewish history in a way that we cannot understand the value at the time of the intervention, but only in retrospect we can understand. Like, for example, uh, well, the example for this is that Imagine if like all the best and brightest were suddenly just taken away. Like you're uh, now a nation bereft of its leaders. It's devastating. But the Almighty knows that, that that this community is coming to an end. And if the Jewish people are exiled and they don't have a framework to live a Jewish life, and they get they're at risk of destruction. So what the Almighty did, he took the ten thousand best and brightest, brought them ahead to Babylon. They were there to set up shop, so to speak, to prepare right. for what's going to be a dynamic, 
flourishing Jewish community for millennia in Babylon, right, up to the this past century. There were people, Jewish people living in Iraq, right? That's what started then. Mm-hmm. And it would be the center of Jewish life for a thousand years. And it was established, and by the time the masses came, there was everything. There was yeshivas, there were Jewish stools, there were Jewish butcher shops, everything. Everything was there. Everything was there, ready. And another example, I'll give you a modern example. You know, we look at the Zionist movement as being something so unlikely so strange in the historical uh, vision. Right? The Jewish people were always yearning to go back to Israel. Right? And in, in 1825, there was a major um, effort to try to make Grand Island near Niagara Falls. That would be the Jewish state. It wasn't really? Herzl's idea. Well, we heard about Herzl, Africa somewhere in Africa. Well, uh, that's in the, that's in, the uh, in 1905 in right. the Zionist Congress. That was Herzl's. Herzl right. was pushing for Uganda. Right? But uh, it was very unlikely. And they were... But it, it, it wasn't the first effort, and there was efforts before that, and it was an effort by someone who was totally estranged from Judaism, Theodore Herzl. Mm-hmm. Right. But there was a movement, the movement took steam because God was preparing for the Jewish people who had been in Europe for a thousand years to be like that, exiled. Right? So, and after the exile, there was already was an entire movement with political and, and social and intellectual and everything. Everything was there ready for the new, the, the new issue of the new, the, the new settlement in, in the state of Israel. And there's another example. Also, in, in, in hindsight, we see it. It's clear. It's hi- in hindsight, we see that suddenly, out of nowhere, came this new movement uh, of renewal, this passion to go back to Israel. Out of nowhere. But in retrospect, from 100 years later, we see how God is really playing this game of chess, preparing, right, taking the Jewish people, moving them one place to the other, but the, the seeds are already planted before the wound is inflicted. Yeah, the seeds Israel, of healing are planted. When yes. When I was in Israel, we went to Herzl's, the place where they had that Congress and all, and his burial place and everything, and I didn't know his whole story and how it ended with him. And I was totally surprised that we even honored him in any way. What, why like, is that? Well, because he didn't really live as a Jew. He didn't... Yeah, his well... Family, well, nobody was really Jewish. Yeah. Well, but, no one was... He didn't have any sort of Jewish uh, descendants and his kids committed right. suicide. One committed suicide, one converted Christianity. It was a, it was a sad, but he was Jewish. And he was a reawakened Jew because of his passion to develop the Jewish state. So he was someone oh, who so, actually, yes, okay. so I, I think he's someone that's a, he's a remarkable person. Just you know, it, it's it's an example of someone who has this flicker of yeah. of Jewish spirit still there deep inside of him, even though uh, it was just reawakened. It was just uh, out of nowhere. And this is someone who dedicated his life and his health and all his money. He was a pretty wealthy guy. Everything invested in this idea. And yes, it's unlikely, and oftentimes we see that the salvation comes from the most unlikely of sources. You know, we th- any, any example, any, any part of the lineage, if you look of the Messiah, of King David, is, is always up in the air, right? The story of, Ju- of Judah and Tamar, that's a, that's a very bizarre story. Like, you know, it seems, uh, you know, like Judah's listening to a prostitute. What? What is going on? It happens to be his daughter in law. And this is where God is planting the seeds of, of the Messiah? Of David, David and Bathsheba. Th- this is it. It's like the black. It's like a black eye of the Jewish people, and it ends up being the, the you know the brightest uh, shining star. So yes, that's that's a pattern that we'll see 
again and again that that salvation will come from uh, an unlikely source and uh, uh, as a surprise to a lot of people. Absolutely. Now, at the at the time of the destruction of the first temple, there was going to be a major major upheaval in how the Jewish people operate as a nation. Prophecy is almost over. The last of the prophets we're dealing with, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, people, Malachi, people like that. But that, that's it. Prophecy is coming to an end. The Ur and Vatuma that we talked about, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, that's over. That was only the first temple. The Jewish people are now beginning to spread out. They're not, no longer just all uh, situated in Israel. There is a Jewish community in Israel. There's a much bigger Jewish community in Babylon. Right? The Sanhedrin has to deal with its first Rati, uh, uh, Rati uh, uh, situation because it's also being, uh, being uh, a, a, a um, victim of this upheaval. And there's going to be now the first major movement where Ezra and the men of the great assembly, the term you hear, the Ansheik Knesset Sagadola, are going to institute many aspects of Jewish life the way we know it today to deal with this new reality of what it means to Jewish people after prophecy is going to end and the first temple and its miracles are going to end as well. So, for example, we have today tefillah, uh, liturgy, prayers that were instituted by this expanded, expanded Sanhedrin. Right? The Sanhedrin went from 71 members to 120 members. The modern Israeli Knesset is modeled after the Anche Knesset Hagodola, the man of the great assembly. Word Knesset. That's right. There's 120. So there's 120 this members. Is still it's it, yes. It was for about 100 years. It was in, in I think it was about exactly 98 years. It was an expanded Sanhedrin that was given the name uh, Anche Knesset Hagodola, and they're the first time where we see innovations uh, as a method to uh, preserve Judaism uh, in trying times. So. The, uh, the example that I gave you is, is organizing the, the, the tefillot, the shachras mincha Uh Additionally, they have the job, the responsibility of canonizing the books of the Torah. So we say the Torah, we actually mean the nevim and kesuvim, the, the prophets and the writings. We have this 24 books of the Tanakh, the Tanakh, Torah, nevim, tzuvim is an acronym. And they were the ones that decided which books go in, which books come out. And when they finished and they gave their stamp on it, no other subsequent book could be added. So, for example, the book of the Maccabees, right, is a book that's part of the Christian canon, but it's not part of the Jewish canon. Even though it was written, it seems like, by upstanding Jews, and it was the story of Hanukkah, but that came after the men of the Great Assembly closed the Hebrew canon, right, the canon of the, of the Tanakh, right. and therefore, no other books can be added. Yes? The Tanakh is 24 books. That's correct. So this right here... This That's is, just the Torah. That, this yeah, is it's, the total it's, Torah? When uh, it's in one book like this? Uh, no, this that's the Torah. The Tanakh stands for Torah. It's one section, five books. Nevim, I believe it's 11 books. And Kitsuvim, says in the back. If you go to here, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. If you look at, the, at this pyramid on page three of your handouts, you'll see at the top of the pyramid, there's the Torah, which is the five books of the Torah. Then there's the prophets. In Hebrew, it's called Nevim. Nevim is a prophet. So think of the books of 
of that's Samuel, Samuel, book of Kings, book of Judges. These are the, that's part of eight books, right? Book of Isaiah, book of Ezekiel, book of Jeremiah, eight. right? That's eight. And then Kisuvim. Kisuvim means writings. So writings, we look at like the books of the Chronicles, book of Esther, book of Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, right? Those books. Tehillim, Psalms, Proverbs, 11. 11. Okay, so Genesis 5 plus 8 plus 11, is that what you said? Yes, 5, five. Eight, and then 11. That's correct, so that's All 13 together, plus yeah, yeah. 24, exactly. So who decided what goes in, who decided what goes out? That was the job of the men of the Great Assembly. And the last one actually went in this book of Esther. Now remember, as I mentioned, the story of Esther and Purim that took place between the first and second temple era. So hence, when the men of the Great Assembly were, uh, were organizing the Tanakh, it was uh, very recently after the book of Esther was written, and that was the last book to be included in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible. Okay? Okay, but when, this, I, I hate to keep asking, but... I love the questions. Keep them okay. asking. When you say Tanakh, you're talking about all 24 books. That's correct. Tanakh is an acronym. So you're not an acronym. exactly... When, when you just said that went in to that book, it, it could be any one of these books that you're... I'm sorry? Like you said about Esther. Esther went in... Esther went in into the Tanakh, correct. Right, but which... she go into prophets? She writings? went into writings. Into okay. writings, yeah. yes. It's part of the writings. Now, um, some of the books were compilations. It means like the Book of Psalms had multiple, there's multiple authors in the Book of Psalms. In fact, the Book of Psalms, I think the Talmud says, has ten authors. But it was collected, organized, edited by these, this assembly. The Anshi Knesset, oh, the Men of the Great Assembly. So we, we think of the Book of Psalms as being the, as the work of, of, uh, of David. And then we read on Shabbos, Psalm 90, Tefillah Moshe Yisrael Kim, A prayer to Moses, the man of God. Moses, we're talking about David. David's the author. Well, David is the author for a lot of it, right? But uh, but there are other authors as well, including Moses, including the sons of Korah, including a lot, a lot of people. Tefillah uh, Asaf, Ganim Asaf, etc. Okay, so now uh, we seem to have a more organized uh, or a kind of a new a new world order, new Jewish world order. We have Ezra. Ezra comes back to Jerusalem. And the Jewish people were all moved to Babylon. And now Ezra led a group, I think it was 42,000 people, coming back to Israel. They got permission to build a temple. And only 70 years after the first temple was destroyed, the second temple's construction began. What's interesting about this is that even though the Jewish people had the license and the liberty to go back to Israel, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of them chose to remain in Babylon. And during the Second Temple era, up to the, uh, even after the Second Temple, up to the Second, Second Temple era, we think of it as the, think of the era, about the year 300 or 400 before the Common Era, till about you know, 70 after the Common Era. Um, of the common era and, and even up to the year 500 there was always going to be these two major Jewish communities one of them in Israel and one of them in, uh, in, in Babylon now not to say that there weren't other communities like the community in Yemen 
there was a community that was there for many, many hundreds of years, communities that began to go to Europe, Spain, and North Africa. But primarily, we have pretty much two major communities, and the Talmud tells constantly uh, episodes of, when this rabbi came, the rabbi came, where did he come from? Well, it means when he came from Israel to Babylon. That's what it means. And there was always this dialogue because 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 you don't have internet or cell phones, right? We know that. So uh, there was entire schools of thought of, of study in Israel, and there was an ongoing parallel school of thought and study in, in Babylon. And they would have individuals that come back and forth. And the second you have some scholar coming from Israel, what do you do? You debrief them. You find out what they're saying, right? You find out what the teachings are. So the Talmud recounts, when Ravdimi, when Ravdimi came, where did he come from? He came from Israel and came to visit Babylon. And he came to walk to the yeshiva and they started talking to him. And he would say this and he would say that. They would argue and back and forth. Talmud tells another story about uh, um, there were colleagues who were split. Uh, one of them was in Israel, like uh, Rav Yochanan was in Israel, and uh, Rav was, uh, they were at one point uh, colleagues, and then one of them ended up in Babylon, one of them had stayed in Israel. And they would have, uh, they, he had a student, and the student committed a crime, at least in the eyes of the Babylonians. Uh, there was a story about this Jewish guy, crazy stories. This is a crazy story. This Jewish guy who uh, was trying to uh, set up, uh, being, he was an informant. And he was informing people, uh, informing the government that this guy has this money. And, like, and we know that the law of an informant is you got to kill an informant. In Jewish law, I won't get to the par- to particular people. aspects of why, because he's considered a pursuer. Because the second he informs, he informs the government, the government comes to take the guy's money, and then they say, "Where's your money?" And he says, "He gives the money." He says, "Well, where's the rest of it?" And they end up shooting him. So, in essence, someone who tries to inform the government about other people, even other people's money, much less their iniquities, um, they are. Uh, you, there may be situations where you're allowed to actually execute the pursuer before he goes to tell the government. That's the law. I don't want to get oh, to into it. Before he tells. Yes, that's the law. Whistleblowers. Yeah, well, not whistleblowers, but informants is a better word. How about, can I just one yes. second ask this? What about in Israel today if you had somebody who was. I don't want to get too much. I don't want to get much sidetracked. This is the story. So there was this informant, and a, a big rabbi, and then a Rav Kahana came, he took a stick, and he hit the guy, and he killed him. And uh, his teacher said, the Lord him said, you know, you did a wonderful mitzvah. Because that's what was the right thing to do, and doing the right thing was the mitzvah. But Babylonians will come after you, and 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 they'll, they'll, they'll persecute you. Leave right now to Israel, and it tells a story. He says, he says, he says, go to Israel and go study by my old colleague Rabbi Yochanan. And but you don't open your mouth for seven years. Don't open your mouth for seven years. So he goes there. And uh, don't talk to Rabbi Yochan for seven years. So he goes there, and he goes, and he ends up, he makes the whole trip, and he he gets to this yeshiva, this major yeshiva in Israel, Rabbi Yochanan, and everyone, there's a bustle, hustle, bustle of people, and he meets uh, one of the students, says, where's Rabbi Yochanan? He just finished giving a class. Just finished giving a class. So, fine, so he goes to Rabbi Yochanan, second in command, his name is Rish Lakish, and he says to them, uh, what's the story? And they start talking and learning, which is a term for They were discussing Torah. And this Rav Kahanu, who just came in, this new immigrant, was just a master. He was just incredible. He just ate up everyone there. And, uh, which is a theme you see a lot, that the people in Bava were sharper than the ones in Israel. Mm-hmm. 
And Rav Shlakish, so impressed, he runs over to his brother-in-law of Yochran, who was the master, was really old, sage, venerated sage, and he tells him, Ari Bavel, a lion arose from Bavel, which is a famous line in the Talmud. He said, this new guy is amazing. Fine, so the uh, next day, here's a, new, here's a new class, a new lecture he gives. So they caked, Rav Kahana, the new guy from Bavel, they put him all the way in the front. There's seven rows of students. He's all the way in the front. And he starts, Rabbi Yochan starts giving a speech, and he's waiting for the guy to open up. You know, this is the, this is the guy. He says, "Talk," but he, he remembers. He was told he can't be, he can't talk. So he says another thing. He doesn't say anything. And he says another thing. He doesn't say anything. So he goes over to Rabbi Yochan and says, "Wait a minute, this lion that you promised me turned into a fox." So he says, "You're sitting in the front. You go sit in the back." He says, "I'm all the way to the back of the room of Kahana." And he kind of says, "These seven rows that I was." Uh, that I was uh, demoted, kind of. I was, I was, I was in the front of the line. Now I'm seven. They should atone for the seven years I was supposed to be quiet. He says, "Now I can start talking." So the rabbi says one thing, and he fights back. This is another thing, and he asks some questions, and he totally stumps the rabbi. And he says, the rabbi was sitting on six, six uh, carpets, and every time Rav Kahana asked him a question, he couldn't answer. He got off one carpet. Eventually, after seven questions, the rabbi is sitting on the floor. This, this is a story in the Talmud. Pretty awesome. So, so uh, Talmud mentions that Rav Yochanan, the teacher, was really old and he had big eyebrows. And his eyebrows would cover his eyes. He wasn't able to see. So he tells the students, I want to see this guy. I want to see him. So they came and they take these silver little things and they pick up his eyebrows and he sees Rav Khan kind of had a cleft lip. So he looked like he was smiling. Yes. Yeah, or he was he wasn't able to see. So then he helped, he helped him see. He sees Rav Kahana had like some sort of um, some sort of uh, uh, disfigured deformity, inside, deformity. Yeah. and he said, "This guy's laughing at me." And Rav Kahana died on the spot. Who died on the spot? The, the student, because he made the made Rabbi Yochanan upset on the spot. The next day, they buried. They went to bury Rabbi Yochanan. It's an amazing story. Like this is recorded. This is not just a story. We know the names of the people. We know where they lived. We know the progression of their students. We have dates. We have everything. We see. If you go look here, uh, if you look on page here, page uh, the unbroken chain of Torah transmission, you'll see the names of all these people. We know the names. Where they lived. Number thirty-seven is Rav. Rav was in Babylon. Shmuel and Rabbi Yochan. They were colleagues there at the same time. We know who these people are. Right. He dies. Right? He dies. And the next day, Rabbi Yochan says, Did you see this guy? You see how he was mocking me? He said, No, 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 he wasn't mocking you. He, that was just the way he is. So as he gets living in a little crazy, I'm like, I, I, When I looked at start, I'm like, Whoa, this is a story, right? So he's like, What? I, you know, I got upset at him and I caused him to die because. So. What happens um, next? He says, okay, I'm, I'm, "I'm going to uh, I'm going to his uh, grave." He goes to his grave, and he sees that there's a snake around the grave, and the snake's tongue, the snake's uh, tail is in his mouth, forming a complete circle around the grave, not letting Rabbi Yochanan approach. So he says to the snake, "He says, listen, I want to go meet, go approach my student, Rav Kahana." And the snake doesn't relent. Because I want to go to approach my colleague, my peer, Rav Kahana. He doesn't let it go. 
So I want to go approach my Rebbe, my teacher, Rav Kahana. He lets him go through. Rabbi Yochanan prays. And guess what? Rav Kahana coming back to life. I knew this was going to happen. Wait, don't, don't finish. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Rav Kahana comes back to life. He starts asking him all his questions. Right? And then there's a little bit of a, of a disagreement as to what actually happened because the Talmud is a little bit, uh, uh, is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uh, ambiguous as to what it means. According to one interpretation, Rav Kahana tells him, um, "I'll come back to life only if you assure, assure me that I'll never die again." According to the other uh, interpretation, is it, it, it seems like there's a disagreement as to whether or not he actually came back to life or he just died for that. He, that was that was it. He died. But either way, it gives you a picture of, first of all, what kind of life they lived. Like, yeah, you know, there was a vibrant, vibrant Torah study. And, uh, and there was these different, different communities, one in, one in Israel and one in Babylon. But also the magnitude of the people, like the Talmud, like for us, like the Talmud, like it doesn't blink an eye, the fact that Rabbi Yochanan would get upset, and if he got upset, then anyone who, who upset him would just turn into a heap of bones. Of course, this is someone that's beyond our capacity. Like, we can't even... Uh, there's scholars that have lived in the past hundred years that are so beyond our capacity, we can't even... That, like, they, in our eyes, they're angels. Go back 2,000 years. The people like Rabbi Yochran, the people like Rav and Rav Kahana, they're so beyond... And the Talmud doesn't flinch at a story of, of, of him re, uh, resuscitating the dead. It's not a big deal. And there's many stories like that in the Torah. These were titans of men. And the fact that it, he resuscitated that, no big deal. Okay. The fact that Moses split the sea, that was a big deal because Moses didn't have Torah. The Talmud gives us several stories. I believe one of them is about Repinchas ben Yair, one of the Tanaim who lived 2,000 years ago, a little, uh, who split the sea as well. So one of the commentaries asked, wait a minute, what's the big deal that Moses split the sea? <laughs> big deal. 1,300 years later, they also split the sea. It was commonplace. They resuscitated the dead. No big deal. So the answer is that they had a Torah. The big deal about Moses doing all the miracles was that was pre-Torah. They didn't get the Torah yet. That's a miracle. When someone has Torah, the Torah is the blueprint of the world. If you have Torah, the world is subject to you. The world is subject to you. The rules of the world are subject to you. Someone's supposed to die. What does that mean? If you have Torah, the Torah comes before. Torah supersedes the world and the rules of the world. It's no big deal. Once you have Torah, it could be no big deal for you to resuscitate the dead, split, split the sea. No, not, it's not a big deal. Moses pre-Torah, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Where were we? <laughs> you were talking about the two major communities that one was in Israel yes. and one was Babylon. Yes, yes. And, 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 yeah, so, so we, we, we mentioned Ezra and, his, and the man of the Great Assembly, they, they established the first innovation, first major innovation. They gave some sort of uh, framework for a new kind of Judaism. There's no prophecy. We don't have easy ways to answer things. Right? There's also going to be exile now. Right? We can't just rely on the temple being kind of a center point of Jewish practice. Everyone has to start saying prayers on their own. And uh, yet the, the actual Torah and the laws of the Torah was still maintained in its oral fashion. And like I said, there was these dynamic, vibrant yeshivas 
in Babylon and in Israel where everything was kept fresh and maintained and we still had the Sanhedrin. If you fast forward to after the destruction of the, first temple, the second temple and 100 or so years, 150 so years later, it's already coming to the end of the days of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, they were uh, in Israel, they were always in the temple. Four days before the destruction of the temple, right, they moved elsewhere to Yavne. The Talmud, uh, the Talmud recounts the different places that they went. They, they were a group that was uh, taking it, torn away from its uh, permanent location. They were going from place to place, and there was a threat that they would seize, they would be disbanded. The second they dis- they're disbanded, the last stalwart of Jewish central leadership would be over. Now what happens when you don't have centralized leadership, when you don't have the greatest Torah scholars assembled to be able to answer your questions? What could possibly happen to the accuracy of the Torah? Within a few hundred years, you may have different versions, different strategies, and you'll have different religions. That's why about 110 or 20 years after the destruction of the First Temple, there was a man who is central, like, like Ezra, central. He made the ma- next major innovation. His name was Rabbi Judah the Prince, otherwise known as Rebbe. If you open up a book of Mishnah and say, Rebbe says, wait a minute, there was a lot of rabbis. Right. Who's this one rabbi? He's just called Rabbi. He was assigned by the Jewish people the title Rabbi, because he's the rabbi of everyone. Because he is the one who had the foresight had the capabilities, had the political connections, and had the enormous wealth, and was perfectly situated at a time where the uh, Roman, uh, the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman uh, leadership was friendly. He was friendly with Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the uh, who was the emperor at the time, and he was able to assemble a thousand rabbis and to collect all of the. Uh, laws of the Torah and organize them and canonize them and set them into writing for eternity. And he was the one who codified the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of 63 books organized into, you'll have this over here on your sheets here. Collection of 63 books, well, you have to email, email us, we'll give it to you. 63 books organized into six sections, a book, a section on agriculture, a section on laws of the holidays, like there's a book of Shabbos, there's a book of Sukkot, there's a book of, of, uh, of Purim, there's a book on Passover, there's a book on Rosh Hashanah, but, right? Okay. Uh, more of the uh, uh, holidays. There's on marriage and divorce and women, it's called Nashim. There's a book of damages, all into personal law, all, all uh, property law, all uh, criminal law, uh, all of that, law of jurisprudence, holiness, like the laws of uh, the temple, and all the sacrifices in the temple, and purity and impurity, the laws of purity and impurity, which are things which are not so much relevant to us because we don't really live in a time where uh, the state of the purity is that pertinent to our life, as it, with, the, with the exception of laws of Nida, uh, which is um, still very, very uh, uh, important for the way we live, but... Uh, with the destruction of the temple, a lot of what Judaism is and laws of Judaism is not relevant to us. But it's still there and it's still preserved for eternity. And after the Mishnah was organized, after it was codified, after it was set into writing by Rabbi Judah the Prince and his collection, a collaboration of 
the uh, of all the rabbis, it's set in stone, and no future generation can in any way question, uh, and, and they're all subject subject to it. They're all subject to it. So that That's why. Now, the mission is just the laws. It's not any of the interpretation of the laws or the sources of the laws or the reasoning of the laws or the exceptions of the laws, everything else that goes around it. It's just a very short, concise, succinct, brief law. That's the mission. They're just statements. So that means that those can be changed, right? Cannot. Cannot be changed. And anything that comes afterwards has to fit into that framework. Just like when Moses gave us the Torah, the written Torah, right? It's a final word, not, none of it can be changed, right? And anything that you say afterwards has to fit in to the written Torah. So too, at the time of the Mishnah, anything that comes subsequently has to fit into the Mishnah. So you'll see many, 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 many times in the Talmud, 300 years later we have the Talmud. The Talmud is the same thing as the Mishnah, but for everything else of the Oral Torah. Not just the laws, but all the elaboration of the laws, all the sources of the laws, all the exceptions of the law, all the applications of the law. It basically takes this very concise Mishnah and expands it to every other aspect of it. And oftentimes in the Talmud, it's a very vibrant, uh, uh, there's lots of narrative, lots of dialogue, but oftentimes one of the questions that would be asked about a ra- uh, of, of an Amora, an Amora is an, uh, one of the rabbis uh, in, the Mish- in the Talmudic times, one of the questions that will typically be asked to him is, wait a minute, how do you say that doesn't fit in with a certain Mishnah? Because after the Mishnah was finalized, everything else has to fit into the Mishnah. So, if you're a rabbi that comes after the Mishnah, and you say a statement, a teaching, and that's incompatible with a Mishnah, then your teaching is discarded. Unless you could defend it. You could say, and how would you defend it? You would say, I have an alternative understanding of that Mishnah. Hence, my teaching still fits in with the Mishnah. Or you could say that this Mishnah is in dispute. And what I'm saying is only in accordance with a different Mishnah. I'm just saying my position in a different Mishnah, in accordance with the Mishnah, which is in dispute with this Mishnah that you're saying is a, is a question to me. Now, isn't that part of the discourse that goes on? And in all that's the Talmud. It's all that conversation. Yeah. And so you'll see a uh, Mishnah, and then I'll say a rabbi says, how do you say that? That's the discourse of the Mishnah. And he says, no, 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 I learned that Mishnah this way. Or he can say, no, 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 no. There's a, there's a dispute amongst the different Mishnahs, and I'm, I'm saying my position in, a different, in accordance with a different Mishnah. I'm not arguing this Mishnah, I'm explaining a different Mishnah. And the two missions are allowed to argue because they're 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 on par with each other, right? Now, once we have the Mishnah and we have the Talmud, we are still missing something. That what we're missing is halacha. We're missing what to do when you have a dispute in the Talmud. You have two Mishnas, and there's a disagreement. Or you have two Gemaras, two Talmuds, and there's a disagreement. What about Halacha? What do you actually do? That was not necessarily always so clear from the Talmud. Even though the Talmud itself gives, it, it, it's, it gives us a uh, rules 
for it's self-governing. It gives us rules of how we apply. Like for example, we have rules saying uh, that we go after majorities. It's the easiest rule. We know that there's a majority rules. So if there's 500 rabbis saying one thing, and one rabbi saying the other thing, we go with the majority. There's other rules governing um, when you have an individual screaming, Be Shammai, the students of Shammai, students of Hillel, we go with Hillel, with 18 exceptions. Yeah. And what those exceptions are, we know that. Uh, but to organize that, and to codify that, and to, and, and to write that down, that was a task that was given to later generations. I want to read to you here, very importantly, from the Rambam. The Rambam lived in the 12th century. So, 1135 to 1204. And he wrote one of the most influential books in the next stage of taking the Talmud, which is the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? And, and, and organizing it uh, in, in, for halacha, for us in a practical way. What's and he Gemara? says, Gemara and Talmud is the same word. Okay. Sorry. From the time of Moshe, it's, it's a little bit long, but it's, but it's kind of what I just said, so you, I'll read it quickly and you guys could, uh, you'll, you'll see how, uh, what I got was from this. From the time of Moshe until Rabbi Judah the Prince, no one had written a work from which the oral Torah was publicly taught. Publicly. No one had made the final word of the law. Rather, in each generation, the head of the court or the prophet at the time wrote down for his private use notes on the tradition he heard from his teachers and he taught in public from memory. So to each individual, every, every, there were students, it was vibrant. Right? There was yeshivas and people taught their children. And wholesale knowledge of Torah was ever-present. Right? The, the Jewish people were, were rife with scholars. And every individual wrote down, according to his ability, parts of the situation of the Torah and of its laws that he had heard, as well as new matters that developed in each generation, which he had not received by tradition. Right? Such had always been done until the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince. He gathered together all the traditions, all the enactments, and all the explanations and interpretations he heard from, from, from Moses, our teacher, or had been deduced by the course of all generations in all matters of the Torah, and he wrote the book of Mishnah from all of them. And he taught it in public, and it would be known, and it would became known to all of Israel. Everyone wrote it down and taught it everywhere, so that the oral Torah would not be forgotten. Remember, we said there was a time when the Sanhedrin was already at its last days. The Second Temple was destroyed. The Jewish people were further fragmented and splintered. The danger of destruction of the Jewish people via destruction of the Torah was imminent. That's why why Rabbi Judah Prince did what he did. Says the, I'll read again from the Rambam. And why did the prince do so? And did not leave the matter as it had been? Good question. Who was he, who, why did he innovate? Because he saw that the students were becoming fewer and fewer. Calamities were continually happening. Wicked government was extending its domain and increasing its power. And the Israelites were wandering and reaching remote places. So there's a time of governmental uh, restrictions. There was exile. There was calamities. There were fewer students, and thus he wrote a book to serve as a handbook for all so that it could be rapidly studied and would not be forgotten throughout his life. He and his court continued giving public instruction in the Mishnah. Now, is this is Rambam or? Well, he, Rambam is talking, he's giving a history. Rambam, he's giving a history and he's talking about Rabbi Judah the Prince, correct.
Because he later on he's going to explain how he fits it. He he fits it. And then he goes. He moves on. He gives a list of all the students of of Rabbi Judah the Prince. He talks about Rabbi Yochanan. We talked about we met Rabbi Yochanan, right? Uh, although these eleven, I skipped a, 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 um, uh, I a, a, a paragraph. He mentions eleven students of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Uh, although these eleven received from Rabbi Judah the Prince and attended his house of study, Rabbi Yochanan was young at the time and later was a student of Rabbi Yanai, received the Torah from him. Rav, we mentioned Rav. Rav and Rabbi Yochanan were colleagues. One of them was the one, right? Also received from Rabbi Yanai and Shmuel, who was the third colleague. And Rav wrote the Sifra, so they added Rav and Sifra and Sifri, etc. And he goes on, he lists all the rabbis up to Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi was the one who wrote down the Talmud. Ravina Rav Ashi was the last of the authoritative sages of the Talmud. It was Rav Ashi who wrote the Babylonian Talmud in the land of Babylon, about a hundred years after Rabbi Yochanan wrote the Jerusalem Talmud in Israel. Well, what's the Talmud? I'm sorry for going through this really quickly, but I, I, I think I've kind, of, we kind of covered a lot of it, so I'm just going to read what he says. The subject matter of the two Talmuds is the interpretation of the text of the Mishnah and the explanation of its depths and the matters that developed in the various courts from the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince until the writing of the Talmud. From the two Talmuds and from the Tosefta, from the Sifra and the Sifri, there's other books, contemporary books, and from the Tosefta, from them all are to be found what is forbidden, what is permitted, what is clean, what is unclean. Right? So he's trying to say there's a lot of information out there. And from all of it, you have everything. I'll, read, I'll quote it again. From the two Talmuds, and from, from the Tosefta, and from the Sifra, and from the Sifri, which are contemporary books, and from the Tosefta, from all of them are to be found what is forbidden and what is permitted. How do you live as a Jew? What is halacha? What do you do? Right? What is clean and what is unclean? What is liable? What is exempt? What is fit for use? What is unfit for use? According to the unbroken oral tradition from Moses, from Sinai. And he says that besides for the law, there's custom, there's legislation, there's fences. He gives a whole list here. After the court, and I skipped a bunch of uh, paragraphs, after the court of Rav Ashi, who wrote down the Talmud, in the time of his son and completed it, means his son Mar Rav Ashi, he finished the job, the people of Israel were scattered throughout all the nations, most exceedingly, and reached the most remote parts and distant islands. And armed struggle became prevalent in the world, and the public ways became clogged with enemies. So that thorough fear connecting the various different communities, that stopped, that we mentioned in our story. The study of Torah declined, and the people of Israel ceased to gather in places of study in their thousands and myriads as they had been before. Skipping a few more lines here. Just trying to get the highlights here. I know. Because it's so valuable. You know. Whatever is in the Babylonian Talmud is binding to, on, on all of the people of Israel. And every city and town is forced to observe all the custom observed by the Talmud sages and to enact their restrictive legislations and to observe their positive legislations. Because about the Go'onim. Okay. Now. Sorry, sorry if I'm doing this to you. I'm like reading and reading. But I think it's really valuable, so I'll just keep on reading. It's a lot. Now, my mind is talking about his generation. In our time, severe troubles came one after another. 
All are in distress. The wisdom of our sages has disappeared and the understanding of our discerning man is hidden. So there's been a decline also in the quality of the leaders. Thus, the commentaries, the responses to questions, and the set of laws that the Geonim wrote, Geonim was the period after the Talmud, which had once seemed clear, have in our times become hard to understand, so that only a few properly understand them. And one hardly needs to mention the Talmud itself. The Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Sephra, the Sephri, the Tosefthat, all which require a broad mind, a wise soul, and considerable time before one can correctly know from them what is forbidden or permitted and, and the other rules of the Torah. What he's saying is a very important idea. The Talmud contained everything you know, you need to know. It's all there. But people can't draw it out from there. Because they don't have the time to study the entire Talmud. Right? They're not, right? This is where Maimonides fits in. For this reason, I... This is the introduction of, of Maimonides. Yeah, I know. I'm, yeah, no, TMI. no, I mean, yeah. the people have... Yeah, it's too much information, and it's very difficult information. And it's a lot. For this reason, I, Moshe, the son of Maimon, hence Maimonides, the Sephardi, found that the current situation is unbearable, and so, relying on the help of the Almighty, I intensely studied all these books. For uh, I saw fit to write... What can be understand under, under what can be determined from all these words works in regard to what is forbidden and permitted and unclean and clean and the other rules of the Torah, everything in clear language and terse style, so that the the whole oral law will be thoroughly known to all, without bringing problems and solutions or different points of view, but rather clear, convincing, and correct statements in accordance with the laws drawn from drawn big word from all these words and commentaries that have appeared from the time of our holy teacher, who is a reference to Rabbi Judah the Prince, to the present. And what is the Torah? Right? So, exactly. So what Maimonides is saying like this, let me let just uh, rephrase everything he just said, basically. What he's saying is like this, I'm going to give you the book to end all books. I'm giving you the book in a very clear, or, and he writes a little further, he says, all you need is the Torah, five books of Moses, and my book. Because I'll give you all the Mishnah, and all the Talmud, and all the Gonim, and everything, all the customs, everything. What's his book called? It's called the Mishnah Torah. Which I have to tell you something. I read a, a biography of Maimonides. Yeah. And it talks about in this biography, Betty, about how the rabbis, the other, some of the other leaders of the day, trashed this guy like yes, crazy. They yes. were so mad. Oh, I'd love to read that. Because they said, to, they said, right, they said to him, how dare you tell people that they don't have to study the Talmud? All they got to do is well, read that's, five that's, books well, that's, your, that's, your Mishnah that, it's, it's, it's a fierce debate whether or not the right. I'll read you what he says here. I have called this work the complete restatement of the Torah, Mishnah Torah. For a person reads the written Torah first and then reads this book and knows from it the entire oral Torah without needing to read any other book between them. It doesn't say that the Ramam is trying to say that you don't, uh, that, that you uh, shouldn't or that he doesn't, you know. Uh, he's just saying that you should learn all of what you need to do. Here, yeah. Exactly. He's not saying not to learn the rest of the Talmud. I mean, he was just, he was was really criticized by some That being said, the Rambam is the, one of uh, the the people that uh, personify the next stage of the development of the Torah, where it's taking everything, like he said, taking everything and organizing it in a, in a structured way. Now, the book that you mentioned, Mishnah Torah, that is organized in a very interesting way. How is it written? Like, where does it start? Is it written? So we find in that, uh, in that period, we find four different methods of organizing the information. 
For example, we find the Tur. The Tur lived a few uh, hundred years after Rambam. A little, a little more than that. And he organized it by, by the, the, the day. So he, the first thing he writes is what to do when you wake up in the morning. That's how he starts it. What do you do when you wake up in the morning? The Tur. The Tur is one of the commentaries in the Rambam's class. You have the Rush. He writes it as a commentary on the, on the Talmud. So it's in the order of the Talmud. You find the Chinuch. The Chinuch writes it in the order of the Torah. So from Genesis to, to Deuteronomy. Maimonides, interestingly, writes in the order of importance. So he starts off with the most important principle and seems to end with the least important principle. From start to finish. Who determined what's more important? He did. And hence he organized his book in a way that was never seen or done uh, till then. And his vision was for this to be the book that answers all questions. And he was right and he was wrong. He was right because it was the book, but it didn't actually answer any questions. Actually, it just brought up more. Why? Because other people followed suit. He wasn't the only one to do that. He was the most famous one to do that. But if you went 300 years after the Rambam, now you, what you have is the same problem. You have the same problem in a more evolved fashion. You have the words of the Rambam, but you have also the words of Rabbi Afasi and the Rush and the, and the Tur and the, the Marami Rottenberg and all the Rishonim, but they all wrote. It was a time of tremendous scholarship, a time where even, like, even though there was major, major upheavals uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages, the medieval times uh, in the Jewish people and the world, right? a time of tremendous challenge and inquisition, exile, crusades, all those things, and we have a very, very vibrant uh, Torah and voluminous writings from the rabbis of that time. In fact, there's uh, one of the, uh, a group of rabbis called the Balai Tosafot, who were grandchildren of Rashi. Rashi was also from that time period. And they wrote so much, and there was one time that they were stuck in a cave, hiding out from... Uh, from their oppressors, and they had no pen or ink, and they cut, them. they cut no, themselves, seriously. and they took their blood, and they kept on writing. That was their dedication toward, towards writing. So after this period, think of the year 1500, you have an enormous, enormous volume of, of, of content. And once again, if you just open up your eyes and say, where do I start? Right, you're mystified. So the next thing that we find is, once again, another, another effort to organize it all. We find that it was a two-tiered effort called the Shulchan Aruch, which is a short version of the Bet Yosef, which is a more longer version, where he pitched sides and settles disputes amongst the Rishon, amongst the group of, uh, of scholars of Maimonides' uh, era. And he writes what became the authoritative text of Jewish law, Called the Shulchan Aruch, it has in it uh, the the commentaries of not the commentaries, but the uh, Shulchan Aruch means a set table, and uh, it has in it uh, what's a book called the Tablecloth, which is uh, if you open up a Shulchan, a Shulchan Aruch today, you'll see that it's it's kind of weaved together. It's really two books weaved into one. One is called the set table. One of them is the tablecloth, the Mapa, and that became accepted by the entirety of the Jewish people as the authoritative work of Jewish law incorporating all of the opinions of all the Rishonim. Rishonim are, means first ones, and they are referenced to the uh, scholars from the year 1000 to the year 1500, roughly. 
they like Rashi, Alfasi. No, the year one thousand to the year fifteen hundred. Uh, names like Rabbi Alfasi, Rashi, uh, Rabbi Nunisim, Fashba, Ritva. There's lots and lots of lots and lots of names. Maimonides is probably the most famous of them all. Uh, Nachmanides as well. Tu, Rosh, etc. So what they did is they organized that, and that's what we have today, till this day, as the uh, the uh, authoritative book of Jewish law. And not to say that it ended there. There was many, 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 many commentaries written on the uh, on the on the on the Shulchan Aruch. And in fact, Maimonides, like we see, if you read from you read from his introduction, seemed to want to be the book that ends all books. But in fact, it's the book that has the most books written upon it, more than anyone in history. Uh, in that fact, is, there it averages that nowadays. Sums us up in yeah. Nowadays, uh, on an average year, there's 300 new books published on the Rambam's book, and uh, and that's a testament to the lasting legacy and the impact that this book has had. And similarly, the Shulchan Aruch. There's also hundreds of books written a year on that because it's updated uh, and. Uh, and, and refresh and hone further and further. Now, last point I want to say is that you think of this progression. I think we got a very good picture of how the Torah is progressing. You think of it, it's, it I think there's a danger of thinking of it as it uh, breaking down, so to speak. Uh, as if there's just more and more disagreement and more. In fact, what it actually is, is honing Sharper and sharper. More clarification, right? Well, more clarification, but like Maimonides says, clarification because we need the clarification because we don't have the same intelligence or the same dedication or the same purity of mind. Right? Like he mentioned, we're not as wise. I'll read his his words again. Uh, Because we are not um, a broad mind, a wise soul, considerate and considerate time. Uh, What's actually happening as we progress is where the early generation would give a more broad picture because it was understood that once you had this broad picture, you actually knew everything else. It still, it still maintained the requirement of, uh, of knowledge. It means that the, the oral Torah was kind of given incrementally. First, it was just the laws. Right? True to the prince, just the laws. Everything else was still maintained in its oral fashion. Right? The, 300 years later, right, the degradation of, of, of the situation of the study uh, progressed. More was written down. More was revealed, so to speak. Right. Later on, the halacha was also revealed. Right. And we have uh, also a wide, wide, wide picture of what halacha is and the, 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 the various perspectives on it. And we have disagreements in very, very specific and minute aspects of, of laws. But in the general characteristic, what the general law is, that is never in doubt, never, never in dispute. That's always agreed upon, and we're just honing further and sharpening further uh, our understandings of, like for example, last night, last night, today's Wednesday night, Tuesday night. I was in, I was in, I was in the shul here in Israel, and there was a, a scholar from the neighborhood, and he was asked. We were talking about a halachic uh, question. What was the question? Ready? Listen, how fine are we talking about? Friday night we make kiddush. Matzah uh, Shabbos, after Shabbos, we Havdalah. His question was like this. There is an opinion that says that the mitzvah of Kiddush is of biblical origin and not rabbinic origin. Similarly, 
there is an opinion that says that Havdalah on Matzah Shabbos, after Shabbos, is also biblical and not, and not rabbinic. Now, in the opinion that says that Friday night Kiddush is biblical, there is an opinion that says that it's also a, a biblical commandment to drink wine, and there is a prohibition of giving the wine to anyone else. Therefore, ask the question, if so, how do we, during the nine days, uh, or during the nine days between uh, the beginning of the month of Av, till Tishabav, we know there's a restriction on a non-Shabbos to consume wine, and therefore, Matzah Shabbos, the, 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 after Shabbos uh, of Tishabav, you make Havdal on the wine. What do you do with the wine? You have to give it to a child. Well, according to the opinion that says that it's of biblical, of biblical origin, and perhaps the wine consumption part of it is also of biblical origin, and a parallel example to that, in the opinion that says that Friday night Kiddush, the wine is also of biblical uh, 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 origin, you're not allowed to give it to children. How do you give the wine on, uh, on, on this particular Matzah Shabbos to children? Now, tell me, does that sound like a core principle of Judaism? No. It's not. But you argued for how long? It was a nice, vigorous discussion. <laughs> Because it's a very, very delicate, fine, and specific aspect. For the rest of the world, aspect that's of, why. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can understand when you start to learn this stuff, I, I, you know, how people can right. study a lifetime and still, I you know, get and so here I am, yeah. you know, trying to learn well, stuff. Well, what it's about me? Like, you know, well, to, well, you probably, that's not yeah, it. But, um, You've been doing it probably longer than no, I have. I mean, I but I, 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 think, I, think, I think the lesson really for us is, uh, number one, I think the most important lesson is that we live and die with the Torah. Jewish people live and die with the Torah. And I think it's a very fair history of the Jewish people when we give the history of the Torah. You know, because what's the most important thing that we have is the Torah, and that's, what, that's how we're defined. Mm-hmm. And the second we lose that, we lose who we are mm-hmm. as individuals. And the premium that we have placed Thanks over the years... Torch. I mean... Well, I, torch. I never, no, but I never put it all together. I didn't. Yes, yeah, so um, so what we tried to do tonight was to give a, a the briefest of pictures of the whole, like like we said when we like last time we did for perspective of Jewish history. It's a glance, it's a sketch, right. because if you want to go, you could give you could either do take one afternoon and talk about a specific year yeah. in history and go right. very fine, or you have a broad picture and you see kind of like the big, you know, kind of like the forest, right? right? Either you examine the tree or you examine the forest, right? right. Exactly. The worst thing is we try to, you know, we try to do like a half, you know, you can't have a very long uh, discussion about, uh, you can't have a very long discussion about all the individual trees of a forest, right? That's too much. My, my, not a question, but a right? right? Either you discuss one tree or right. you discuss the entire forest. Right. Right. I just have to say something like that. Yes. When um, my husband passed away three years ago and I had just started studying with Torch when he went into the home, so it's about four years ago. And my son Joshua, of course, is from these guys. These guys? What do you mean? We're family. No, no. What these guys? Okay, but what I'm trying to say. Right. Our guys. We're one family. scribes are scribes to the same set of beliefs. No, 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 no,
Okay. He well, observes. He yeah, okay. It's That's so the anyway, service. questions came up while my husband was in the hospital. Yeah. And every two minutes, my son was on the phone with a different rabbi in a different part of the country on this thing, and I go, on that thing, and I go, wait a minute, I don't understand. He's the expert on this problem, whether we can put the pacemaker in or not put the pacemaker whether the, the, the thing the, that you have signed at the hospital for end of life, whatever you call that. DNR. That was a different rabbi. And you know, I, I just thought it was like amazing that he knew all these different people and he dialed a phone number and he went, Rev so-and-so, this is the situation I'm having here. I'm at the hospital and my father's sick and this is what's going on. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh but my This God. is another example of, of, of the kind of study that we need to do today where you have to take also new scenarios and new technological realities and try to uh, superimpose what the core immutable principle of Jewish law is into a, uh, into a brand new thing that wasn't around the Talmud. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Now, is, it, is it usual then today for, for different rabbi scholars to focus in and become expert in certain areas? Yes, that's it common. Is. That's yeah. what goes on. Yeah, that's hey, I don't know. I didn't I know, know that at the time. I I've, I've only, only three and a half I years was, learning this stuff. Right. So I was you know. back three and a half, four years yeah. ago, and, so that's and I didn't know that, okay. and I was kind of amazed at it, and, and yet it was real, and then it would put me on the phone, and I feel like my daughter's like talking to God. I don't know this man, and he says, this man is the yeah. foremost authority on this subject, and I'm going... Hi, this is Betty Schwing. <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't know that. I did not know that. I didn't know that that's, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. I remember Rabbi Wolby telling us once that he has, we talked about that, 